Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. The metabolic cost of keeping warm is quite high. And you don't want to spend that cost and then run for two hours and 20 minutes. What's happening there is again, your nerve conduction speeds have slowed down. Your coordination is impaired. I think a lot of athletes got too cold because they didn't know what steps to take. So welcome to our London Marathon episode of the Science of Sport podcast. As usual, I'm here along with uh, Professor Ross Tucker. My name is Mike Finch. I'm the editor of Runners World and Bicycling Magazines here in South Africa. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about cycling. So we decided to make a little departure from uh, our cycling coverage of the Tour de France and the World Championships and all sorts of things we've been talking about and talk about the London Marathon that happened this weekend and what a race and what a lot there is to talk about because uh, there's certainly some interesting things that we're going to be getting into today. Um, some surprising performances and for those of you of course that uh, are into the marathon running scene will probably have seen the race yesterday, realised how chilly it was and how cold it was. I know that I have family living in London right now and uh, I think autumn has hit in a pretty severe way. They've had a wonderful summer but when it gets cold in England it certainly gets cold and I think we saw the ramifications of that at the London Marathon um, this weekend. But before we do that we're going to chat a little bit about our wonderful supporters and I'm going to ask Ross to take it over because uh, we have quite a few new members of our Patreon uh, supporters at the moment. Yeah, the Olympic athletes, Olympic champion and Olympic legend club. Once again, thank you to all of you who've donated. Um, I'm not going to say this. I've got to think of a new way to say this because I always say the same thing. <laughs> but this is where you go on, basically, if you're regular listeners and you pledge a bit every month to support our efforts. Uh, as I said, there are three levels and we've had, what's it, two weeks since our last... Tour de France podcast, and we've got 14 names to get through. So I'll go through them quickly for you. At the Olympic athlete level, welcome to Carl Horan, Horan Dina Blacking, uh, Gary Hughes, and Gerard Healy. They've come in at the Olympic athlete level. One up from that is Olympic champion Bob Campbell. Thanks very much for your pledge. And then Ralph Mitchell, who I know is a medical doc, works a little bit in rugby, so interested sometimes i've had a few discussions with him on twitter about concussion as well also a keen cyclist and then awesome to have so many olympic legends it's becoming congested in the vvip <laughs> room uh, but we got this time to thank david Dor duran or doran uh, richard law dan farmer john carr Kilefs Totras, I'm sorry for the messing of your name, I really do apologize. That's why you're doing the names and not me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks Mike, hospital pass. Uh, Chua, ZH, just initials there, thank you very much. And then Sasha Golish. So you are all obviously part of our valued community and we are thinking about ways to do yeah. more for that community. I thought this morning we'd have coffee mugs or something saying caffeine is a stimulant or, <laughs> or like things that you know put something funny on there. But what do we want to do? And, and, and one of our patrons actually messaged me on Sunday morning while mm. we were watching the London Marathon saying, are we doing a live broadcast on, on the London Marathon on Patreon? And that's something we should do. Yeah. We couldn't this week, but that's the kind of stuff. And we want to try and deliver a bit of value to that community. But just to be part of it, uh, thanks very much for your pledges. We really do value the interaction and the community that exists around the science of sports. So thanks very much. Big time. I think you had a shirt idea. Why don't we have a shirt that says rarefied air? <laughs> That's the one I use for the uh, Olympic legends. It's not so rarefied anymore because there's so, so many of you. So exactly. And I think one of the main reasons why we like having our Patreon supporters is that, you know, we've seen and we've talked about uh, the other podcasts on uh, online and the, 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 the one that Lance Armstrong does, the move where they have like 10 minutes of adverts mm. before they get into the actual meat of the conversation. And we don't really want to go down that route if we possibly can. We might get a sponsor somewhere down the line um, if it's the right fit for us. But um, we're trying to avoid all that commercial stuff up front. So your support allows us to do this without having to do that. So thank and you then very on, much I'll for that. And then just quickly, John Carr is one of our Olympic legends, but he actually 
pledged way more than the, the amount required. I actually thought there'd been a mistake. I hope there wasn't, John. <laughs> Keep it there. But John Carr is more than an Olympic legend. He's like if Zeus himself descended from Olympus to compete in the Olympic Games. So that's John Carr. He's our premier Olympic legend because he <laughs> played so much to the cause. So thanks well, very you much. See, he's sort of an Iliad Kipchoge of uh, well, Patreons. Eh? Right, except at the peak, not the... <laughs> not where he was. Not where he was yesterday. <laughs> well, that's a nice segue to go into our conversation today. And uh, we're going to be talking, as I said, about the London Marathon. Of course, the big news is not who won, but rather who didn't win. And that was the name of Iliad Kipchoge, who finished eighth behind Shura Katata, who won the race in 2.05.41, which is a relatively slow time when you compare it to most of the marathons around the world the last five years. Kipchoge finishing in 2.06.49 for the eighth place, which in any marathon 10 years ago would have been right up there in the top three, uh, but uh, was a personal worst for him outside of the Olympics that he did in 2016. Yeah, and so it was the big story. And I mean, even yeah. the commentators, at the time that he got gapped with about five or six kilometers to go, there was a front group and it was it was doing the old concerto thing. It was bunched and then stretched and bunched and stretched as little surges were thrown in. And there was a point at which suddenly Kipchoge wasn't second or third when it got stretched. He was fifth or sixth and then seventh. And at that point, the storyline was written for the race. Yeah. And you feel a little sympathetic to the guys who ended up winning it because... <laughs> you know, you've actually dethroned the king and that is the headline, but so much focus on what went wrong for a guy who was actually 1% behind the winner. So it shows you the margins. And I think the most amazing thing really about Kipchoge is that, is that for what's it, 2013, so we're talking seven years, he has not produced a performance that is even 1% below where he's capable. It's amazing mm. to benchmark his performance yesterday against the past and it looks so poor mm. but it's <laughs> it's just because he set the bar and not just the bar so high but such a consistently high bar that's what's remarkable about it we we're talking just off air before we went onto our podcast about the south african record that's just over that two or six mark and as you said relatively speaking to his normal standard it was slow um, but compared to even the best South African runners, Khat Tace, of course, the South African record holder there, um, it was right up there with it, which would have been the second fastest time by any South African in history. So even though there are many other comparisons we can make, it shows you that even a bad performance for Akinchogi is still you know, probably in, in the top 1% of performances ever. Yeah, the, uh, I suppose you know, to say he's over five minutes behind his own best. Yeah. Um, the conditions yesterday, and this is really one of the big themes of our podcast today, is what does the very cold and wet condition do yeah. to performance? That's certainly part of why, not just Kipchoge, but everyone was probably a minute or two slower than they would have been on an ideal day in London, because the course was certainly quick, but the times yeah. were not. And that's really weather. But again, I mean, the guy's won 10 competitive races, and he's had two successful time trials in that yeah. period. And you have to go back 12 marathons before he had what you'd call a disappointment. <laughs> And uh, this was this was a big disappointment, and so it was the big story. As we say, it was it was the headline, but um, I think there's a lot goes into it, and you realise actually when you hear them talk afterwards about how much stuff can go wrong. Yeah, and you know when you then when you look back, and everyone's a genius in hindsight, but you know in, in 2017 he missed London because he did the first sub two attempt in Monza, and then that year he raced in Berlin. And he won that race in 203, 31, 32, I think it was. Mm. But only by about 14, 15 seconds from an Ethiopian called Gaia Dola, who was actually ahead of him with two Ks to go by 10 meters. And I remember at that time watching it and going, oh, this is Kipchoge's bad day. But he dug deep and he somehow recovered. But that was probably a bad day also. Mm. But his quality has been so high that his bad days or his less than ideal days were still good enough to win. Mm. Now the question, of course, is, is this the beginning of the end? <laughs> because time catches up with everyone. Yeah. And uh, by next year, April, May, maybe we'll have a better indication. But you can't, you can't draw a line with one point. No. So we have to get the second point, which will come next time he races. You know? But he's, he's, he's done 13 marathons, 14 actually, right? Because there was a 12, ma 12 winning streak yeah. yesterday. And the first, second one he ever did, he lost. Yeah. Um, and I remember a study was done now, probably a decade ago, and the game may have changed a bit, but the finding was that typically an elite marathon runner will peak on five or six. And after five or six, they get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Now, obviously, some people buck that trend. Gabriel Selassie did, I think, his 
fastest time ever was in his ninth or tenth race. Kip Sang, I think, did it also. But eventually, you just run out of miles. <laughs> yeah. And will that be the case for Kipchoge? Tune in next year. And there's two facets to that, and I know that I keep on banging on about this off off our podcast about how motivation plays a role at that level that he's at. And if, if anybody has to look at Kipchoge, you would say he's probably done everything that you could possibly do and more as a marathon runner. So when he lines up for a race now, what's the motivation to win again and to run a faster time? Besides just the physical training of somebody training for a marathon distance, because I imagine physically just training for that, the mileage involved, the, the repetition on the muscles, all that sort of thing must have an effect. So there's two aspects of that that I always find fascinating once you get to a certain point in your career, physically, maybe you're not able to train at the same level, but also the motivation side, probably a bit waning, I guess, after a while. It might be. And uh, we know from the documentaries around the sub two attempts that Kipchoge has this almost monk-like commitment to the marathon. He mm. does very little when he starts preparing for one other than run, sleep and recover. Mm. And so if the motivation goes, then you're going to get little shortcuts here, little non-suboptimal behaviors there and maybe those things start to accumulate and undermine your preparation mm. and performance i mean he said before the race that he was in the same condition as he was before vienna when he did the 159 but they always every athlete yeah, says that I have I mean, to you're say not that. gonna you're not yeah. gonna go there and say this well except for bekele but we can talk about him separately he says yeah. This has been a tough build-up and I'm not in great shape and two days later he's not running anymore. Yeah. But Kipchoge has always been, I think, he's shown he knows how to arrive at the start line in really good condition. But in time, that creep, maybe motivation-linked, has to catch up on yeah. him. Yeah. I think he really needed the Olympic marathon to be this year Yeah. because I think the opportunity to defend an Olympic title and potentially like that would be, I'm not thinking he'd retire then, but that would really be a, a fitting peak conclusion. Yeah. Because unless what I'd like to see him do, by the way, is race uh, Boston next year. I'd love to see him race New York. Okay, the Olympics will be next year instead of New York. But hopefully, to start well, yes, <laughs> to start because um, you know I looked at his his marathon history yesterday. Other than his first one, which was Hamburg, it's Berlin, London all the time. Yeah, and then obviously Rio was a tactical race. But I'd love to see. Kipchoge race, the New York race, and and um, Boston, where there's no pace setters, and it's a different beast. And or Cape Town, yeah. Yeah, let's get into <laughs> Cape Town. Ilana Mayer, make it happen. <laughs> we love that, London we? couldn't deliver Kipchoge, Bekele, but Cape Town will. But a marathon by Africans on African soil would be brilliant. So just to wrap up this, so Katata was the winner. Just a quick observation about him. I know we're not going to be focusing too much on him, but he's one of those unusual runners where he's got quite a long stride, but we often talk about the biomechanics of marathon runners, about economy of form. And he's one of those runners who's got this long stride, but he's, his feet don't seem to kick back a lot. He's almost got this low, long stride that he runs at, mm. um, almost beyond what his physical form is. He's, he's, he's unusual compared to a lot of the Kenyans, uh, the way he runs because of that sort of I weird notice, style. I didn't notice that, I'll be honest. Yeah. I didn't see that in that finish straight. There was a, I mean, the finish was terrific. That mm, was. And, and they film it with that moving camera from the side and they, uh, Kipchamba got the jump on him a little bit and then yeah. as he caught up, that was a really great shot of the two guys running side by side. It was, it was very good to watch. Um, I know we don't talk about physiology of particularly the East African runners, but there's definitely a difference between the Ethiopians and their physical build versus the Kenyans. Yeah. The Kenyans tend to have these long limbs, whereas the Ethiopians have these slightly shorter, more muscular limbs. And in that case, when you're coming down to sprint finish, you're always going to back the guy that potentially has the more, the more faster sprinter-type legs um, compared to the long, lanky Chipchumba. Yeah, my guts would agree. Yeah, I mean, but I then, know there's no signs. <laughs> but then I think, okay, if I go back in history, like Murat Yifta was the 10K guy in the 80s, and he had this unbelievable kick. Gabriel Selassie had it. Michele mm. had it. I don't know whether that's just exceptional runners who would have won no matter how they mm. constructed the race or whether it does actually say something about an Ethiopian in a sprint compared to a Kenyan. But that's my impression also. Yeah. It would be interesting to analyze. Yeah. 
And look at Bekele. I mean, Bekele is quite a short, stout kind of guy, yeah. relatively speaking, compared to uh, Kipchoge, for instance, and yeah. uh, certainly yeah. capable of a good kick. But uh, they yeah. all are at that level. Yeah, so, it'd be interesting to explore that, actually. So let's start off with some of the uh, some of the sort of build-up uh, talk there was. Obviously, Bekele was uh, pulling out. He pulled out like two or three days before, suffering from an Achilles problem, apparently. Mm. Um, the, the shoes, obviously, were an issue. Um, and even, with, uh, even with Bekele's withdrawal, actually, because... Yeah. On the Monday or Tuesday, when they all had their first press conference, he hinted that he'd struggled to adapt to the Alpha Fly, and he said that it would cause muscle pains and muscle tightness. Um, and then when he withdrew on the Friday, obviously the question is, well, is the injury directly linked to the trying to use the shoe? Now, who knows? Uh, mm. We don't know really anything about the shoe, this Alpha Fly model, let alone whether it predisposes or increases the risk of injury. The prediction you'd make, and we covered this actually with Jeff Burns when we did the shoe podcast. We've done two now for listeners to go back on. The prediction you'd make is that when you put something stiffer in a shoe like that and you change the shape and the, mm. the height of the mid midsole and the stack and so on, you are shifting load. And one of the places you can shift load is to the posterior muscles and the Achilles and the calf. So when Bekele says, ah, oh, calf and Achilles problems, it's hard not to join two in, or join the dots on yeah. that one. That said, Bekele's had Achilles and calf problems since 2009, I think. So it mm. could just be that the guy's predisposed. And we know from reports that his training wasn't going particularly well. And so it might be that in September, October, he just did too much because yeah. he was trying to congest his training. And so if regardless, we were denied the big confrontation. But based on what I'd heard anyway about Bekele's training is like, I think I think his Ethiopian compatriots would probably have beaten him too. So yeah, yeah. I wonder if he got paid Bekele just to be lining up, and then if he pulls out a few days before. I don't know whether we know that, but I'm sure that, uh, that a lot of these runners. And you talk about the, the world's best marathon runners. I have no problem with this because when you compare it to you know American football and some of the golfing names out there, that the money's relatively small. But these big name athletes get a lot of appearance money, and they often get money pre-event as mm. part of the publicity for that event. So I'd imagine Bekele probably got some sort of money uh, to be part of the event and then obviously he would have been paid beyond the day and, of yeah. course, if he'd done a performance. But yeah, like a someone yeah. agreement, yeah. someone start line, someone finish. Yeah. I, I, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, yeah. maybe it's all on start It's a sliding line. scale stuff. Mm. So they, so they're basically, um, Kipchoge was running in the Nike Alpha Fly, which, of course, we've done this talk about. One of the interesting things about it is that it, if you look at it online you have a look at some of the photographs that we've seen, it's this almost like this... Um, John Travolta platform shoe <laughs> that he's holding up that is massive stacked high heel, 39.5 millimeters compared to the maximum allowance of 40 millimeters. I mean, it really does. We don't want to harp on about the shoe, but it really yeah. right under the limit of what the uh, World Athletics is talking about in terms of what's legal. Yeah, and that's the situation. I mean, in the women's race also, there's some discussion now this morning about was one of the podium finishes Sarah Hall, was that shoe legal? Does it violate one of the handful of policy regulations that the world athletics body has put in place yeah. um the question remains i mean and and, and I, I tweeted something on thursday or wednesday last week i forget of a picture of this alpha fly you know and i still feel that we can't assess the results of a marathon with a great deal of confidence that mm. we've seen physiology win as opposed to technology and it frustrates me because people's response to that is, oh, but we don't know if the alpha fly is better than the next percent. And we don't know if the next percent is better than the, alpha, the vapor fly. Yeah. That's the problem, guys. <laughs> That's yeah. the whole issue yeah. is if you don't know it, all we know is that the vapor fly, 4% shoe, the original one, appears to be considerably better than mm. its predecessors and its competitors. Mm. And if it's better by 3%, or even one and a half percent, that's a minute to two minutes in a marathon. That's decisive to the result. That is a bigger difference, and you saw this in action on mm. Sunday, that is a bigger difference than the difference between first and eighth. Yeah. Which means that if you randomize the allocation of shoes between first and eighth, the result would change based on who got what shoe. That's not what running is about. So yeah. that's the problem. Now you've got the next percent, which apparently is better, and you've got the alpha fly, which may or may not be better than the next percent. And again, all we know is that the elements of the technology, the, the foam cushioning and the integration with a carbon fiber plate in whatever shape or configuration are performance enhancing. But we can't quantify that. Mm. So therefore, we can't trust the outcome. That's the problem. It's, it's not about knowing. The issue is not knowing. 
Yeah. Anyway, it's just, it's so annoying because now there's doubt over the result. And there's always, okay, let's be candid. There's always doubt because you never know who got away with what doping. That's the, that's the yeah. other issue. Yeah. But now you've got this elephant, shoe-shaped elephant in the room and... <laughs> It just, it just well, it, the, I mean, it was addressed yesterday by the, one of the commentators, Mara Yamauchi, who's a um, British runner, who is, who is one of the commentary uh, people. And a big shout out to her because she references some of our podcasts that we've done in the past uh, on Twitter. Yeah. And we know that from the stuff that she was saying uh, during the podcast, uh, during her uh, commentary, that she was talking a lot about the stuff that we've talked about on those podcasts. And yeah, she, she said... Was, she was fantastic, by the she way. Was like, brilliant, she was yeah. really good because... It's one thing to do a podcast for 45 minutes on it, but to distill it into five minutes. Yeah. And she was accurate. She was technically insightful. She was strongly opinionated. Yeah. And what a pleasure that is, by the way, because I can think of certain other British marathon runner commentators who wouldn't <laughs> touch it with a 50-foot yes. pole or a 40-millimeter alpha fly. And she, she went there and she named brands and she spoke about the pros and the cons and the yeah. challenges and the issues and the mistakes. It was, it was really good. So well done. And I, the bit I heard that I liked from her, she said that uh, she's a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to these sort of things. When it comes to running and marathon running, she feels like if, it's, if there's a mechanical advantage, it takes away from what the sport is about. It's about yeah. human endeavour, who is the best person on the day. Although she did have a little caveat at the end where she said, maybe you just can't stop um, science and advancement and that sort of thing, which I guess is where the nub of this thing lies, is because there's always this debate: how much of, is it progression in terms of technology versus how much is it keeping the sport pure, the way that we want it to be. Right. Yeah. And the so. philosophical issue, which she covered during the men's race, the women's race. If you want to hear the technical stuff, she did it really well there. Mm. The philosophical one was in the men's race. Is really how do you interpret the outcome? Does mm. the result have meaning? And where does a running result obtain its meaning? Is from the application of training to physiology, not yeah. the interface between technology and physiology. That's the issue. And okay, so yesterday's race, the the game changes when it's that wet and cold mm. because now I think the weather makes a bigger impact on the outcome than the shoes even can. So now you've got something even more significant. Yeah. And the and the and the, and the athlete's ability to tolerate the cold, wet conditions probably even overrides whatever benefit they may get. So. We get that marathons are not, they're not random, but they are impacted by so many factors. And yeah. yesterday, the shoes weren't in the end decisive, not least of all because everyone had them on. Even there though, by the way, responders and non-responders. I mean, just the fact, so Bekele said in his interview before he pulled out, that he tried in the Alpha Fly and he couldn't adapt to them. Now, that's because they caused injury. I think they were a little bit less stable than the, than the next percent. But even that's an example where, if, and again, I'm underlining in bold the if, because that's the problem, if the alpha fly is 1% better than the next percent, and some people can adapt to it and others can't, then are you seeing the best runner? Yeah. Or are you seeing the best runner technology match? And if you don't mind, then fine. But I mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I don't, anyway, it's it, it just, <laughs> it, it annoys me. And then it annoys me in the context of Sarah Hall as well, because she comes through the field, she oh, runs spectacularly. The, she runs the best paced race on the day. Yeah. Um, to finish second, catches the the Kenyan Chip Nagetic within fifty meters of the line, I guess. Yeah, sprints past her. Yeah. And then the discussion after the race is, but but are these shoes legitimate? Are they legal? Because no one knows what they are. She's sponsored by Asics. Doesn't look like an Asics shoe that you can buy in a store. Mm. That would, in theory, violate the prototype regulation. But that's hazy mm. <laughs> because it. <laughs> The, the company couldn't, anyway, the IWF issued an update on the World Athletics, sorry, an update in August where they said, provided an athlete makes the shoe available to non-sponsored athletes, mm. it's still legit, even if it's a prototype. So it's very murky. Yeah, yeah. Turns out the speculation now is that it's another brand's shoe with a different upper because they wouldn't name it in a, but anyway, but now instead of talking yeah. about like a her PB. Good performance, and, yeah, it's lost. It's the shoe. The, yeah. And that's not her yeah. fault. Yeah. That's, that's the fault of loopholes. Mm. left there by the authorities. And that's not now, but in 2015, 2016, when they could have closed those loopholes in the first place. Anyway, that's 
the subject of it was a lovely it was a lovely moment and i know that her husband ryan hall obviously one of americans america's uh, best marathon runners over the last uh, couple of decades uh, he was there supporting her on the side of the route and uh, encouraging her and she was very emotional because uh, she hadn't done well i think in the olympic trials earlier this year that's right yeah. and uh, this was kind of her first sort of gateway mm. into the big time and beating some pretty big names and beating the world champion in the process I which mean, was remarkable like a super an amazingly strong field yeah not big time. maybe the best field london's ever had but very good yeah and in tough conditions which i suppose yeah is good for her. and yeah. uh as i say and so anyway so the let's run one of the journalists from let's run jonathan galt sent a tweet out and her agent josh cox replied saying the shoes are legit they were inspected and approved mm. and so that's the situation but no one knows yeah. what they were they speculate and that's the problem when you haven't earned the trust of the community through strong leadership and clear leadership then people will question it even when you say something so yeah. Yeah. here we are i mean yeah. And luckily, in the end, the men's race we can talk about, and in fact, the women's winner we can talk about without the context of shoes. But it's it's there now, and it's sad. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that a lot of you who listen to this podcast will have listened to us talk about the shoe debate over the last uh, year or so. And uh, you're very welcome to tweet us and uh, let us know what you think about this uh, story around shoe and whether shoe technology should be one of the factors when it comes to good marathon running. But let's move on to the very subject of Elliot Kipchoge. And I read a story on runnersworld.com where they talked a little bit about that he, first of all, complained that he had a problem with his ear. His ear got blocked up. Um, it was then translated into his manager saying that uh, he felt that after his ear blocked up that he couldn't drink properly, therefore he was missing water bottles and therefore his energy was suffering towards the end of the race. He, he basically pulled back with 5Ks to go and it, it, it was a weird yeah. explanation. So I sent you the link and, and your explanation was? Well, I, I didn't know what it meant either. Yeah. What does it mean when your ear gets blocked? Yeah. The only thing I can semi-relate to is when you get a head cold or a sinus infection sometimes your ears feel like they're blocked and you're yeah. a little bit underwater and you feel like that you know like you get water in your ear or something mm. and so i was like well, i wonder if this means that he had an either an ear infection or a sinus infection and whether the cold air and the wet because not just that day but presumably leading up to that day might have triggered something in him that just meant that he wasn't quite healthy on mm. the day so I, so I popped a message off to Sean Ingle, who's a journalist. He was covering the race and he was with the athletes. And I said, can you from the clarify Guardian. from the Guardian? Yep. Yeah. I said, can you clarify what it means? Did, it, did he mention it to anyone else or did he expand on what a blocked ear is? And Sean said, no. And they only have four questions in the mix zone. So no one really got to it. But that's mm. the assumption is that it was some kind of sinus uh, congestion, mm. head cold. I'm not sure. Triggered by the cold, potentially. I don't mm. know. Yeah. Uh, and I can see that. I mean, I've, I'm sure many listeners can relate. When you have got that, you, you sometimes don't feel like you can drink. Swallowing might be painful. I'm not sure. but Yeah. But it's, he wasn't at 100%. No, he wasn't. <laughs> but you already knew that because he didn't run 204.50 or something. Yeah. And in fact, again, in hindsight, everyone's a genius. But when they went through halfway in 60, let me just check. It was it was 62, 62 something. 47, I think. Uh, check your memory. 62.54. There we go. I was close. Having, having run pretty consistently just under three minutes a K to that point, you got, okay, we know it's cold and a little bit wet and maybe they've decided, in fact, it was clear they decided they weren't going to hunt a 202. Mm -hmm. But you'd have thought at that point, Kipchoge, if he's good, he's telling those pacemakers, because they're his guys, by the way, I mean, they're, they're not neutral guys. Mm. Uh, he's going to tell them, let's go. Let's go five seconds a K faster. Let's inject a bit of pressure onto this race. Because at that stage, there were 10, 11 guys. Yeah. And he didn't. And so maybe you think, actually, maybe he didn't quite feel it from even halfway. But anyway, it's all speculation. The, yeah. the other thing to bear in mind is that the day-to-day -day variation in marathon performance is definitely more than 1%. Mm. I mean, if you took the same guy with the same training, it's hypothetical, and you line him up on the same marathon 10 times, he's not running within 20 seconds of himself. Mm. He's one minute fast, one minute slow. So there's, there's yeah. natural variation, and he might just be in that. But then the problem is everyone wants to know what went wrong. Yeah. We must explain this. Yeah. And so you try and find reasons. You say, well, my ear was a little bit blocked. and It might yeah. just be that he just didn't just have an off day. So that happens. I and mean. he's probably the most consistent, because he's the most consistent marathoner uh, we've seen in right. history. Uh, I guess it highlights, when he has a bad day, it highlights the fact that maybe he's just normal and just had a bad day. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. guarantee you the guy who came fourth or fifth 
on another day might be 30, 40 seconds faster. Yeah. Kipchoge would maybe, anyway, it, that's the point we're trying to make in the introduction is you set a bar that's super high and super steady. Yeah. Any deviation from that yeah. suddenly looks like a crisis when it might not be. So, yeah, he he clearly had an issue. Then he spoke about a hip thing, said he had a hip problem as yeah. well. He saw that quote. He was also apparently cramp. Yeah. There was a cramp and quote the, as well. So That's the thing. Like when you, don't, when you don't succeed, there are five five things in the post-mortem that you can blame. Yeah. And I get the impression they're looking... Anyway, who knows, who knows what yeah. blocked ear means, but for whatever reason, he just yeah. didn't have... One of the interesting things that I read, um, I think it was on the runnersworld.com coverage of this race, which actually was some of the best coverage they've ever had, I think, of the of the London Marathon, maybe because there's well, not much else to talk about. whole six months to build up to it. <laughs> it did. But the, the women's race, they were talking about the timelines of the women's race, which I think started, what, 8 o'clock in the morning in, in London? Eight, eight, nine, well, was it 7.15 there, because it was 8.15 outside. Yeah, so That's 7:15 an early start there. for them. It was dark, which is unusual. Usual, Which was unusual, with. but they yeah. started. Apparently, the, the, they got, they left. They some of them woke up at two o'clock in the morning. They then had this sort of pre-run routine at the hotel they were staying, in, which was on a forty-acre plot. Not quite sure how far it was away from the actual venue, but it sounds like it was at least a half an hour drive. And they got onto the bus. They then got to the start um, at about four thirty in the morning. So they were there way in advance. How much of a factor is those really early starts? That that sort of freezing cold conditions it was raining at the start there was hail on the route on the on the day just the pre-prep of that and the and the, and the sleep that they get that, that must affect the athletes at some point yeah even the whole covid what they call in england a biosphere secure biosphere yeah. in america the bubble whatever the bubble, i mean yeah. just the keeping the athletes to that routine i don't know what it involved it would have been actually quite cool in the mm. broadcast to mm. see what that transportation looked like and yeah. what the hotel because they had this, they did allude Mara again on the broadcast, and the, her co-commentator um, Rob Draper, I think it is, mm. alluded that every athlete was given a little device, which would then beep if they got within two meters of someone else. So they were quite clearly being uh, watched yeah. electronically to change their behaviours, and that sort of stuff must accumulate. And if you, I mean, imagine waking up at two thirty, and you got for the men, if the men had to do it with them. Yeah. They've got nine, just under nine hours yeah. before they're going to race. Now, when they get to the start line, is it a warm environment? Are they able to sit down, put their feet up, lie down? Yeah. Do they have to mill around in chairs? Because the, there's, there's, A, there's an emotional energy cost, and there's also there's a physical energy cost to doing that. So well, the stuff that I read is that in, just before they got to that start line, they were literally dressed up you know, with all sorts of thermal wear before they got to the start line. And it's one of those occasions where they have to maintain as much body heat as possible until the very last moment, and then they basically strip down and off they go for their run. But I, I'm, they were literally, apparently, according to the reports I read on runnersworld.com, was that they were standing on the start line in their sort of warm gear and then just before the gun was supposed to go it was it was taken off so it, i guess that was the tough part of it that was that cold they were trying to maintain the heat until the very last moment that they could yeah and then it never it always it never so let me just get this right it never ceases to amaze me how badly some people dress for the cold because they're so <laughs> unaccustomed to it yeah and I remember this, the Boston Marathon a couple of years back was even worse than this. I mean, that was so savagely cold. Yeah, they have some bad days. That was actually almost dangerously cold. This one was unpleasantly cold. But even there, you just see athletes don't know how to dress for it. You know? And mm. that's the impression I got yesterday is I think a lot of athletes got too cold because they didn't know what steps to take yeah. in order to insulate in the race. And if you're once you start running, obviously, you're generating heat and you're helping to almost offset the cold but and then you actually like it to be quite cold not too yeah. cold but quite cold but when you're standing at the start and you're getting cold I mean, yeah that's a, that's a problem because the metabolic cost of keeping warm is quite high and you don't want to spend that cost and then run for two hours and 20 minutes or two hours and eight minutes whatever it is yeah so that's a that's a big challenge and yeah well that's the obvious question i think we're getting down to the real nub of this podcast today is that for, for the non-scientist in me, it says, okay, if you're if it's cold in the morning, now the temperatures varied between 4 degrees at the start of the women's race right through to 9 degrees for the men's race. So it was sub 10 degrees Celsius. Not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but I'm sure you can work it out. Ross can because he's got a good mind like that. But So it was, it was cold. It wasn't freezing sub-zero temperatures, but it was definitely cold. When you get into a race situation like that, I imagine running anything close to sub-230 marathon or in the case of the men, close to two hours, you're obviously generating a lot of heat. 
So my mind says to me, surely the colder it is, the better you run, because you're, we know that the hotter it is, the worse that you run. Mm, but it's a classic J-shaped curve where at the two extremes, it's bad. And mm. at some point in the middle, it's optimal. And the question is, what's optimal? Yes. So we, hot, too hot's easy. Yeah. We all know on a hot day, you go five minutes and you just feel like you've got a puncture. You just can't go. Too cold is unpleasant and can be painful, but it also directly affects your physiology. I remember the, one of the examiners of my PhD was an expert in hot and cold physiology because I'd done a couple of studies on exercise in the heat. And he published a bunch of papers looking at what happened to muscle force production when you cooled the skin off. And sure enough, when you get the skin below a certain temperature, your muscles actually can't produce the same force, which is pretty interesting. Even though internally you're probably producing so, a lot of yeah, heat. So your skin temperature influences your muscle force. Now, uh, if your muscles get cold, then it's even worse. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff on this comes from cold water swimmers. Um, and specifically, it's done in the military because the Navy is exposed to cold. They, they, they're cold water swimmers. They're not winning medals, but they're cold water swimmers oftentimes. Yeah. And so there's quite a good body of literature on what happens to physiology in cold water. Now, being cold on land and being cold on water are different games altogether. Water is far more dangerous because mm. water moves heat off the skin so much more effectively than air does. But when it's wet and a little bit windy, or if it's wet and you're running at 20k an hour, that's the wind speed, <laughs> and it's cold, then you've got a problem. And so... Those athletes yesterday would have had a thermal challenge mm. because what's happening is you're generating so much heat at the muscles, running at three minutes, five a K for the men, three minutes, 25 a K for the woman. That heat has to then be lost. Mm. The way you do that is you sweat and you send the blood to the skin and then convection moves the heat off the surface of the skin. But now you've got this cold air and so you get too much heat exchange at the skin that blood starts to come back to the body. It's a little bit colder than you'd like. It's not cold because your skin's still warm from yeah. exercise, but it's quite a challenge. Mm. Meanwhile, if your skin is a little bit cold, you, as I said, your nerve conduction speed slows down. That's been shown in studies. Your muscle force production goes down. So you mm. can't run 249 a K. You're going to run 255 a K, even if you're going at the same effort. Okay. The hormonal system is being challenged because in addition to, we all know what it feels like to shiver. Mm. The point of shivering is muscle contraction to generate heat. That's called shivering thermogenesis, heat generation. There's also a non-shivering thermogenesis, which involves hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. Now, if you're faced with a challenge where my body perceives there to be cold and you start spending your hormone system on trying to keep warm, mm -hmm. there's less because the budget isn't unlimited, <laughs> there's less for actual exercise. So you can see there's actually a little bit of tension there of, of trying to keep the exercise quality high and spending a little bit of metabolic energy on actually trying to keep warm. Yeah. And then just the perception of it. <laughs> if, you get, if you start to get cold, I mean, I remember the first time I, because in South Africa, we don't really know cold, let's be honest. <laughs> like we, in, no, I think it's below fair. 10 degrees Celsius here. Fair. Like it yeah. does, in Johannesburg, like where I grew up on the altitude, it's 2,000 meters and you yeah. get unbelievably cold morning you get no? minus one on the odd occasion yeah um but 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 it's not quite the same i remember cycling in switzerland for the first time in 2004 and i went up this pass it was like 2300 meters then dropped down the other side yeah. of it and unlike because i was an amateur at this i didn't put newspaper up and keep warm <laughs> enough by the time i got into the valley i couldn't turn the pedals mm. because my joints felt like i, I had arthritis it was yeah, and that's a that's a perceptual thing Joints cooler than normal, skin colder than normal, muscles colder than normal. You just can't do the job. And it's quite clear that that was affecting a lot of athletes yesterday as well. What's interesting is that a local South African athletes um, by the name of Malakaya France uh, actually sent a voice note to his coach in the Eastern Cape by the name of Mike Mbambani. Um, we got this voice note from Alec Riddle, a very well-known coach in the Eastern Cape in Port Elizabeth, and uh, he shared it with us. And uh, this is what uh, Malakaya had to say. Yeah, of course. The weather was so bad after the last three, three laps. And I was freezing, freezing, freezing. After the finishing, I, I couldn't walk. I was freezing. The assistant assisted me to the tent with the wheelchair with a lot of, of towel on my body. 
and I couldn't take off my clothes. It was so cold on that day. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So that gives you some indication of the average, I'm not saying the average athlete, but that's one of South Africa's best marathon runners mm. who describes quite graphically how it cold affected him. He was he literally in a wheelchair afterwards. He wasn't able to even operate himself. Yeah. And I'm sure many listeners can relate. Like you get, if you've been on a hike or something in the cold mountain, you get back into your car. You can't, you can't turn the ignition. Your fingers are shot. Yeah. You can't hold the key. You just sit there with the heat on and you hope that things thaw out quickly enough. And that's, so what's happening there is, again, your nerve conduction speeds have slowed down. Your coordination is impaired. Um, in swimmers, they've studied it again. Uh, a lot of it comes back to cold water. They actually find that they get like T-Rex arms because mm. you can't straighten your elbows anymore. And so you start doing what we call in this country doggy paddle. I don't know if this is a word. Does this word exist around the world? <laughs> I'm assuming it does. But instead of doing freestyle, you end up basically just treading water. You can't, you mm. literally can't swim anymore. Your stroke length drops. You can't breathe at the normal rate. So it really does affect quite a lot more than just I feel But cold. those are extreme temperatures. And that's why this is interesting because for me, something around four to nine degrees Celsius feels like it's not extreme. It's chilly for sure, but it's not extreme. Yeah, but do we know what that correct temperature is? I mean, what is what do we know about the best temperatures around the best marathon times? Well, remember, it's 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 five or six degrees Celsius plus twenty k an hour wind because you create right. even if it's still day, you're still creating wind through movement right. through the so air. So there's a wind chill in and there, and then it's wet. So it's rained on you. Now you've got yeah. a wet skin. So the the actual perceived temperature. I, I received a tweet actually from someone in London saying. That they're saying it's nine degrees Celsius, but I promise you, here on the ground where we are watching this, it is more like it real feels like two to three degrees Celsius. Ah, uh, okay. plus water. Right. So, so that that combination okay. is. I mean, again, it's not it's not like being dunked into the icy waters above the Arctic Circle. Yeah. But it's it's still too cold, sense perceptually, mm. and then because of its direct effects on muscle force production and nerve function and metabolic hormones that are trying to like. Yeah, defend against this cold skin. That's still enough of a challenge that you can't sustain it. And I, I, I worked once with a very famous cold water swimmer who was preparing to break a world record by swimming for a kilometer at 80, 80 degrees north in the Arctic Circle to mm. show global warming was a thing because you shouldn't be able to do that, but you could. Yeah, so that's at one degree Celsius, and he was going to swim one k. And we habituated and we trained him because it's amazing, actually. The physiology adapts to cold water exposure. You Don't you get fat around your organs after a certain well, amount of time if you're training in very cold water? Yes, and I, but I don't, know if that's the, if, I don't know if that's the cold water exposure that does that. It would be amazing if it did. Okay. Or, or if that's that they know that that's the case and so they actually start eating more. Right. But I remember with this guy, if, if we, did a, we did a training was session. Was this Lewis Pugh? It was Lewis Pugh. Right, yeah, yeah. Maybe our listeners know. I yeah. Know yeah. A well-known South African open water swimmer. Yeah. He's done a lot of work for the environment in the and past and quite well-known in South Africa. Right. The human polar bear, they used to call That's it. That's what they call it, yes. And so, so what we did was we set up a, a, a what's basically like a back garden pool <laughs> at, the, at the waterfront near the harbour here in South Africa, and we just shoveled ice into it, and we got it down to five degrees Celsius, and we tethered him to an elastic bungee cord, and it was t- tied to a light pole, and he just used to tread the water, basically, for 20 minutes. Right. And then we, over the course of a week or two, we lowered the temperature so that he got adapted to it. And there's various, it's really fascinating. Like the, there's something called the cold shock response where the moment, and everyone knows this, if you, even if it's just up to your ankles, the first thing you do is you gasp. You know that feeling where yes. if you walk into Clifton here or cold water and the, and the wave hits your ankles, you go, <gasps> that's actually an involuntary reflex. It's called the, it's part of the cold shock response and it's followed yeah. by hyperventilation and, and all sorts of other things. <laughs> and obviously... 
If you if you're fully if immersed, you, if you live in Cape Town, you swim anywhere on the Atlantic coast. You know right. all about that. Especially I've done it now. a few times. Yes, <laughs> and over time with exposure, that cold shock response gets reduced. So you get yeah. a smaller gasp, you get less hyperventilation, and that makes you better at swimming. And, and so it's really a fascinating area of research. But the reason I'm telling you this is because occasionally, <laughs> occasionally he would go to a spinning class or he'd do a cardio mm. session in the morning, and when he did that. He couldn't tolerate the cold in the afternoon because he'd spent metabolic budget on uh, exercise and then he didn't have enough for the and I remember saying to him, like, one of the lessons we learned from that is when you do this thing, you've got to be absolutely one hundred percent of everything your physiology has has to go into those twenty minutes for a day before. Okay. You can't waste. So you've got to stay warm, you've wow. got to stay relaxed, you can't spend any of your yes. resources yes. because you're gonna need them all for the cold. So little things like that were really interesting. And and then as you say, they and this was known from English Channel swimmers: is they have to be, they have to have high adipose tissue content, because that's your body's adipose best. Adipose is the muscle, the fat around the organs rather than the body. Yeah, and, yeah. and just in general, they have higher body fat percent, in mm. part for buoyancy, mm. but in, but in large part because fat is your body's best insulator mm. when you are exercising. It's interesting that muscle actually is quite a good insulator, but the moment muscle is perfused, which is to say it gets blood flow, it loses its insulating capacity. So one of the interesting. Well, I suppose that's just a, a, that makes sense because if it's warm and and um, it needs to be able to breathe if it's getting hot, I suppose that's just an an, an adaption process. Well, so yeah, so so what's happening is as the muscle receives blood, mm. then it actually becomes a source of potentially losing heat, mm. um, as opposed to actually being an insulator. Right. And so, unperfused muscle really good insulator, perfused muscle no good at all. So cold water swimmers have this challenge that they've got to exercise means blood perfusion to the muscle but still insulate and that's where the fat comes in because really yeah. the only one left so skinny people are rubbish long distance swimmers well, i was going to say you've got african skinny runners lining up in well, these sort marathon, of temperatures them, i mean all of the marathons yeah yeah and uh but does it account for someone like potentially sarah hall who comes from a country where it's potentially colder more often than some of the African runners who are used to have never seen temperatures or running temperatures so like that. There's a few ways that plays out. One is familiarity and adaptation. We've spoken now about how cold water swimmers can adapt. Cold water landlubbers like you and I can also adapt, mm. maybe not to the same extreme, and we don't have a, a cold shock and a risk of drowning to, to worry about, but there's, there's going to be adaptation. Mm. Uh, and, then, and then natural body fat percentages. It would be really interesting. I suspect that some of skin folds predicts performance in cold weather. We mm. know in English channel swimmers that your skin fold thickness predicts your body temperature if you sit in really cold water for half an hour. The, the higher your skin folds, the less cold you get. So I will survive in cold water <laughs> a lot longer than you, I suspect. Well, yeah, and, and we both survive a lot longer than any elite yeah. marathon runner. So, that's, yeah. so it's really interesting, like, you know, yeah, the, heat is in, the heat is obvious, yeah. Yeah. but the cold starts to become... You know, quite a you bit see, more nuanced. And, and just the last point was yeah. when they were doing the sub two thing the first time around, there were a bunch of articles saying what would the ideal conditions be for a race. And I remember an article got written where they concluded it would be in the low single digits. And I were talking four or five. That's not true. That's true in theory because that's where your body is producing heat because of your running ability or speed and it's losing heat at exactly the, the right rate at that temperature. And if it's warmer than that, it's compromised. But actually, there's a trade-off because mm -hmm. that's so cold that you just feel worse and your nerve and your muscle don't function as well. So I think the best temperatures in the low teens, like 12, 11, 11 12, 13. Mm. And once you've started, it probably you can afford it to drop a little bit. So it's interesting. I mean, the take-home service part of a podcast we always like to put out there to all of you that are not elite athletes is that for those of you that live in colder climates, suffice to say, if you're going out on a, on a, on a very cold day to ride or run, you're probably not going to perform as well as you would do if it was warmer, no matter who you are, because you're not going to warm up. Actually, you just you don't you just don't perform as well on a cold day. Yeah, I mean, and your core temperature will yeah. still be high. I mean, those Kenyans maybe not as high as it would have been on a 15 degree Celsius dry day, mm. where they would have finished the race at 39.6 Celsius instead mm. of 38.7, like yesterday. But that's still hot. Yeah. The problem is their skin and their muscles feel cold, and that's exerting a direct effect on performance. As I've, as I've mentioned. So it's there's an interesting trade-off. And again, that's where like arm warmers, and, and again, this is the thing that cyclists know because a cyclist is going downhill at 50k an hour, 60, 70. 
we get a lot colder than a runner ever does. And so you learn pretty quickly, actually, how to stay warmer and keep your periphery warm. Because if you don't keep yeah. your periphery, your legs and your arms and even your head warm when you're going downhill, then when you next need <laughs> a little bit of effort, you do we find know, that you don't have it. Do you know where you lose the most amount of heat from your body? I know like you look at a guy like Chuggy, he always seems to wear arm warmers. Is, is, do you lose a lot of heat through your arms? I think per surface area, your, your head. Your head, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't know exactly, but I suspect it's the head. And then the arms and the legs have got this big surface area, mm. and that's the reason that they're affected. almost radiators, you know, mm. for the body, uh, which is why being tall and skinny is a help in a hot environment because you're losing heat through your distal elongation. And so, again, there's so many cool topics on this. If you look mm. at the build of people who live closer to the equator, they are tall and skinny, Mm. And as you move further towards the poles, they get rounder and, and wider, basically, with shorter arms relative to their body. Whereas at the equator, they have this, as I say, distal elongation. And that's because at the equator, direct sunlight, hotter temperatures, we lose that heat through our body's radiator. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in the north, you don't need it. So they didn't need the adaptation. So, so there's an evolutionary Yeah, exactly. Process. And that's, that's yeah. not wow. true just that's in amazing. humans, by the yeah. way. It's, it's called... It's either called it's not, it's not called Wolf's Law. I see. I should have. I should have thought of this. But see, folks, we don't prepare these podcasts. For just <laughs> chat. Uh, I think it's called Moore's Law or something. I forget. I think we'll but, we'll have to tweet about it but, once you've found but it out applies, the resource. It applies to all animals. It's really, really really interesting, and it's a pretty well established phenomenon, as far as I know. Sure. I'm not a, I'm not a comparative biologist, but I've I've read it in that context. So yeah. So it's yesterday, and and again, you saw it in the. Just in terms of the way the women's race was put together, they started slowly, which is exactly what you'd predict based yeah. on the story you said. You're standing on the start line, you've got a little bit cold, you're not going to go off at 3.15 a K. No but chance. they were, I mean, let's just rewind slightly back on that. So the women's um, record, they were going for the world record for a women's only event. Yeah, which yesterday. is 2.17.01. Yeah. So anything sub 2.17 got them a pretty nice paycheck. I think yeah. I heard the commentary say 100,000. That's not to be sneezed at. Pounds? Yeah, 100,000 yeah, pounds. That's I mean, not that's, bad. That's not bad. Um, so they would have had intentions. And you've got a pretty that. pretty hot bunch of women running in that race and with Koskai and, of yeah. course, the world champion in there as well. The, the big yeah. two, you know, because yeah. the women's equivalent of the Bekele Kipchoge showdown, maybe minus the legacy that those two guys had. Yeah. Uh, but they, they still they went off conservatively. 2.18.40 pace for the first 5K. No problem, because that's kind of like you've got to warm up got to get the muscles the blood flow going and so on but then they got really quick i mean they were 1559 1606 1604 and the projected time at halfway is a low 216 yeah you see i remember wow. tweeting again i should never make predictions but i remember <laughs> tweeting the woman's only world record looks a dead certainty now unless something dramatic happens and in the end it wasn't and this dramatic. is be, this is at the 30k mark they were looking this, good no this was at halfway 20, uh, 21 yeah but then interestingly from halfway to 25 they got slower. From 25 to 30, they got slower. Yeah. Now we're in the 1701 range. Then Costco makes her move and 1642 for the next five, and then 1641. Everyone else, barring Costco, just got slower and slower and slower. And Chep Nagetic goes 17, she goes 16, 16, 16, and then 1642, 1701, 1727, 1812. I mean, the wheels came off wow. in a dramatic way. So mm. Sarah Hall caught her because of her good pacing, but she also caught her because Chepnagicic absolutely cracked in the cold. I mean, it really was a, a dramatic implosion over the last 5K especially. She she was finishing at you know, 340s, 350s a K, which for mm. that standard of athlete is a bad day out. Yeah. I mean, it was a remarkable performance from Koskai. And I think if anybody, I mean, we talk a lot about Kipchoge and how dominant he is, but Koskai in the marathon, I mean, she's pretty good in the short distances and in the half marathon distance. But mm. in the marathon distance, she's almost, you know, seems unbeatable at this stage because in conditions like that, she still performs outrageously well yeah. compared to the, her competitors. And even though it wasn't a world record pace, I can't see anybody being close to her in the next year or so. Yeah, I mean, she's what's the world record's two fourteen. Yeah, it's it's just silly yeah. how much better that is than anyone else's run. So, and she dealt today with the biggest maybe challenge that she's had to face uh, pretty easily. Yeah, and her half marathon is super quick. Her marathon now she's London defending world record. Mm. Obviously, that was in Chicago, I think it was, and that's 
So, I mean, she'd probably be, she'd probably be faster in Berlin, you know. So. Yeah. I think she's only lost a couple of races in the last six months. I think she lost a half marathon to a world right. record earlier this year. And yep. there was a 10,000-meter track record. No, it that was they a one-hour track. That's a one-hour. That's she great. She was beaten by Stephen Hassan. She got that's disqualified right. for stupid. Yes, reasons. but that that's was a world record that took to beat her. Yes. And, and the shorter distances, which are not a and speciality. She was under the old world record in that race too. Yeah. So she's, yeah. 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 So she confirmed her position at the top. Mm. Um, and then the men's race came on and maybe we saw a dethroning, maybe we saw a bad day. Like, as I say, tune in next year. <laughs> yeah. Let's just talk a couple, about a couple of other things before we finish off today. Um, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a digression from what we've been talking about so far, but I often wonder in conditions like we saw in London on Sunday, where you have cold, wet conditions on a road that I'd imagine because of the amount of traffic in that area is full of oil. How much do you think foot slippage on the ground would affect performances on a day like that because yeah. I know if I go running in the rain, you definitely don't feel like you're, you know, powering off as much as you would if you were not if you were, if you're running on a dry road. If it's if it's wet underfoot, you feel like you're slipping, even if it's just a little bit at a time. I'd imagine that has an effect over the distance of a marathon. Yeah, especially when you're taking corners. So the, yeah. the one thing that was good yesterday is they didn't really have a single sharp corner. There, there was. The one that brought them back onto the finishing straight was at probably the closest to 90 degrees, but you can take it quite wide. And some listeners might think this is ridiculous going around the corner is never a problem. But when you're doing it at 21k an hour, it actually is. <laughs> yeah. It's actually You try that and you try sprint, which it'll be your sprint speed. Yes. And then try and hug the curb on a right angle corner at that speed. It's actually quite difficult. Yeah. And if it's wet underfoot, that's a stability issue. Yeah. Um, but I don't, so, so to answer your question, I don't know of any data, but I know that it matters to the shoe companies because mm. I spoke once with a senior engineer who was responsible for shoe development for one of the big global shoe companies. And he was saying to me that they test the product in various circumstances and contexts and environmental conditions. And one other thing they play with is the tread pattern on the shoe, the material on the shoe, like mm. how hard do I make it compared to soft because that affects it. And also they were putting little dimples at the bottom of the shoe to try and create a little bit of extra stickiness. Mm -hmm. It was like a little, those of you who did biology school, like in your intestine, there's these little things called villi in your intestine, like little fingers. That's what they were mm -hmm. putting on the bottom of the shoe. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, does that really make a difference? And he said, yeah, we, we've worked out, I don't know how they do this. They never publish it, the shoe companies, so you always have to take their word for it. They worked out that every time you land, there's like a tenth of a millimeter slippage as your body moves over the foot and you push. because. You're not mm. pushing straight up, you're pushing horizontally and there's a little bit of slippage. Yeah. And they'd worked out that there was this tiny, tiny slippage every foot strike and if they changed that material, they could reduce it by 2%. And he reckoned that was worth 15 seconds in a marathon. Is that true or not? I, I don't know. I mean, so it sounds logical, doesn't it? It sounds logical and like for sure, if you, if you test at the extremes, if you run with a really worn pair of shoes and a new pair of shoes, you notice the difference. Yeah. But whether or not two new pairs, one with these little finger hair-like grippy bits, I don't know what they're called. Uh, so we just nine, call them cilia, shall we? You might, yeah, you might find that there's a difference there. I'm not sure. Yeah. A couple of yeah. people on Twitter yesterday during the coverage uh, tweeted me to say that they've run in the, in the alpha flies and the next percent, and the alpha flies are very poor in the wet. Mm. So that's interesting. I mean, maybe that's, you see, like, let's there add to the list... I mean, the post, there's a nice conspiracy theory for you. Yeah, the post-mortem. You see, that's why when things aren't successful, <laughs> there's always a post-mortem and it's as lengthy as you want it to be. Mm. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, I, I genuinely don't know, but it seems plausible to me that there could be a difference. The other area that the environment makes a difference is it changes the cushioning properties of that midsole. And so there have been midsoles that shoe companies have tried that have failed because the moment it gets too hot or too cold, that midsole material gets too stiff if it's cold mm. and too spongy and soft if it's, uh, if it's sure. too hot. And so, you see, a shoe has, a shoe's got an operating temperature, basically, is what we're saying. Yeah. And it's between, I don't know, minus three degrees Celsius and 28. And the moment you go beyond those two points, yeah. your shoe starts to Even if it's 1% difference, it's all the difference they needed. At yeah. that level, yeah. again, I mean, 1% yeah. was Kipchoge to the yeah. winner, so... That's an artificial. So I guess unless everybody's just running barefoot on the tartan track like we see in track, you can't really, <laughs> there's lots of things you can add as, as factors in every performance. Yeah, Especially in bad conditions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. I, I suspect, again, that 
I don't. I can't imagine that in a, on a decent day, mm. the difference in traction between a couple of shoes is decisive. I mean, it can't. It, can't, if, it seems impossible. But on a bad day, <laughs> I disagree with that. I'll be honest with you. I actually, I'm not. As I say, there's no evidence, but I certainly know from my own experience, running on a day when it is wet, you certainly. Yeah, but we're saying in a decent day. On a decent day, on a decent day, yes. there's no difference. But when you introduce bad weather yes. as a variable, then that bad weather might okay, impact well, yeah. the result yeah. by means of its impact on, yes. on yeah. Yeah. traction. So maybe they'll have wet weather shoes. I mean, down you know, the sport line. where this happens is cross country skiing. Like I remember in in the Winter Olympics, and I know I know very little about cross country skiing. By the way, I've skied once in my life and very badly. <laughs> um, but they wax the skis, and if you don't get that wax right, your skier is either sliding around like he's, he's on, a, on solid ice or he's stuck in it. Mm. And, so, and so that actually can be quite decisive there because cool. the interface between the athlete and the ground, mm. Mm. there must be some effect in running. I just don't know how big it is Yeah, on yeah. a bad day. I, I suspect it's very small on a good day. So wet weather tyres are in Formula 1. Maybe they'll have wet weather shoes down the line. Well, that's what it was like in the build-up, again, not to come back to it. It's like... You had different athletes saying they're going to run in this shoe, that shoe. It's it's just like Formula One or MotoGP. This guy's yeah. got soft front and medium rear, and you know, <laughs> make make a decision. It's a risk reward equation. Comes off for you, it doesn't. Well, if they do invent a wet weather shoe, I think we're going to should be, we should charge commission for that idea because uh, we maybe we can have a different sort of sole that you can put on your shoe. Somebody will come up with idea one day. I'm pretty sure yeah. of it. Anyway, so lots to discuss. I'm sure that all of you that to watch the marathon and uh, lovely to see marathons on, you know, at least a competitive event happening with so many of the marathons uh, being cancelled this year. I think the big sadness for many of you who participate in these events that you couldn't participate with other people. Uh, London Marathon is one of the first races in the world where we've had this kind of virtual marathon running through an app. We're also seeing it here in Cape Town as well, which in a couple of weeks' time they're doing exactly the same thing where you run with an app. And when you go through certain points, it tells you you should be running past certain places. London did it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a kind of new normal, I guess, in marathon running until we've got this virus completely out the way. Yeah. Um, but you know, looking forward maybe to next year, I guess the question is, can Kipchoge come back? And can anybody beat Koska in the women's race? Well, the, the latter one seems like a no. Yeah. Um, I mean, Mary Katani was the dominant athlete. But you see, she's in the same position as, as Kipchoge where... She's really been there for a decade. Mm. He's been there for seven years now in the marathon. And they are, I hesitate to say they're running on borrowed time, but at some point they're going to decline. Interestingly, with Kipchoge, by the way, because of the shoes, it's very difficult to know what his age-related decline actually is. Because if, and again, I'm highlighting and bolding if, if the shoes are making 3 to 4% difference, then since they were introduced, he's actually gotten slower. Because <laughs> he hasn't... He hasn't improved by 3 to 4% since the shoes came along. He's yeah. improved by 1 or 2%, which means that in the same shoes as pre-shoe, he's actually getting worse. So then yeah. he's already on a downward trajectory due to aging and just long longevity yeah. um, issues. Well, we know that those, there are some question marks about his actual age. Well, there's that, there's that too. I mean, I've heard from journalists that he's three or four years older than his official yeah. age. He apparently was registered when he was five or six years of age. We've yeah. heard, but yes. so, again, that's just rumor. Who knows? Yeah. But whether it's whether he's 35 or 40, the point is it's 13, 14 marathons in. You're mm. on a, you should be by now on a decline of some kind. Mm. He might be. Bekele was, on it, I think, on a decline, and then he blew that 201 41. But that was it, that might have been an aided by three percent by the shoe. Yeah. So in actual yeah. fact, that's worth two or five something. So if you, what I'm saying is that if you plot the performance of these guys over the years and you took off and you added, sorry, you you have to add back two to three percent, you get a completely different career tra- or performance trajectory compared to what you're actually getting. So <laughs> it's quite hard to know. And maybe now that the shoe, at least there's some limits on the shoe. Maybe now we'll start seeing actually what the true physiology decline is, and maybe 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 Kipchoge won't go faster than okay. Again, two hundred six forty nine yesterday is a two hundred four on a different day. Yeah, because of the cold, everyone can take two minutes off their times. I suspect. Yeah. Um, so he's still a he's still a sub two hundred five guy, but is he going to be a t- sub two hundred four guy, sub two hundred three guy? I'm I'm not as sure about that. I, no, I mean because neither. Yeah, you never bet against time. Man. I think the he's the best he's ever been, and I don't mm. think he's going to get any better. I think so too. Yeah, I think he could win races. Yeah, again. Yeah, but I don't. I just can't see unless another technological boost comes along. I can't see the 
time staying on the horizontal. They've got to slow down. Yeah. yeah. And then then you've got to say, well, our 25, 26-year-old up-and-coming guys like Katara, like Kip Chumbo, who was good yesterday, are they going to get a minute better? Because if they do, then they're crossing over and they're going to beat him. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see what happens in London and then Tokyo yeah. next year. I, yeah, he Is it the changing I, of the guard is imminent? Again, yeah, we don't know. Like one data point. You don't again. You don't draw a line with one dot, and I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, that's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be fascinating the next uh, six months to a year to see what happens with these top athletes. Mm. Just on another story, we're going to finish off now. But uh, we have been discussing, and we'd love to hear your feedback and some of your suggestions. One of the things I suggested to Ross uh, just on a week ago is that we would like to do an experiment with our Science of Sport podcast listeners. So if you have an idea of something that you would like us to do using all of our listeners as our subjects in this podcast, I know that Ross has got some ideas about how you would like to do an experiment, but if you'd like to maybe throw a couple of suggestions at us, we'd love you to be part of what is called the Science of Sport podcast international experiment. And um, we'll figure out what it is going to be like, but please feel free to uh, engage Engage with us on Twitter. SportsSciPod, of course, is our handle on Twitter. You can also catch us on our Instagram account as well. And, um, of course, engage with us on any of the topics that we've been discussing over the last couple of weeks, from cycling to the London Marathon and, of course, anything else related to sports science. Yeah, including the next running thing is tomorrow night. It's a world record attempt in the 10,000. Right. It's a staged event in Valencia. Joshua Cheptegei, he who broke the 5,000 world record at what's it, five or six weeks ago now, Yeah, has gone and said, well, I've got the fitness, I'm going to go for the 10 as well, and few would bet against him, given the five. So that'll be interesting to see. If I can find a feed, I'll tweet on it. If I can't, <laughs> you're on your own, but I'll, we'll, we'll do something about it maybe yeah, after, we'll just, just analyze it. Because well, his, his 5K was, you know, they use these lights now, did you see that, when they got these little lights that flash on, and yeah. it, it pretty much determines that you cannot mess up the pacing. So that element of breaking a world record is not talking about dealt technological with. advancements. Yeah, I mean, like because <laughs> it's really interesting. Like if you mess up the pacing by half a second or a second a k for the first two or three k's, that could cost you four or five in the last k. Now there's no chance of that happening. So yeah. that seems like a big help for them. Um, so you know you'll be on it for seven eight k's. And the question then is, can he finish that? So that'll be interesting tomorrow. Yeah. Certainly look uh, for a link on that one. That'd yeah. be great to watch. It's, uh, it's called... Well, tomorrow, of course, uh, it, depending on where you're listening to us, uh, you'll obviously might have seen the result of whatever that is. And, but say, uh, oh, it'll be interesting, maybe a, a future podcast. But from us, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. 